committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. It's a risky high-stakes month for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We'll look at the political and national implications of his moves. For Sunday, September 17th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll check in on the major auto strike that could affect the economy and the political climate. We'll also look at Puerto Rico's solar grid. These guys are built for all conditions. They're built for strong winds. They're built for fire suppressant, rain, shine. They're built for kind of these Puerto Rico hurricane conditions. And in this week's Enlighten Me. I grew up extremely religious, and I think that one of the things that kept me religious for so long was the experience of sublimating the ego to a sense of the divine. How spirituality and the feelings of ecstasy mix. All that and more after news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Thousands of climate activists, scientists, and students from around the world are in New York City demanding that world leaders address the ongoing climate crisis. From member station WNYC, Ramsey Calafé reports they're marching ahead of a planned climate summit this week. The message is clear. The climate crisis is here and elected officials aren't doing enough. That is what those gathered at the March to End Fossil Fuels are saying. Harjit Singh, who's part of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative, says politicians need to step up. Uh, We know that leaders are going to be here, but we want them to really step up and talk about moving away from fossil fuels. They can't just continue to expand and then pay lip service to climate action. This march is ahead of a United Nations summit that Secretary General Antonio Guterres is describing as a no-nonsense event to address new climate commitments. For NPR News, Ramzi Khalife in New York. Auto workers are on strike at three Midwestern auto plants for a third day, and they may call on more workers to join the walk-off. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. Talks between the big three American auto companies and the UAW resumed yesterday, but union president Sean Fain says not much has been accomplished. Here was Fain on MSNBC's Sunday show with Jonathan Capehart. Progress is slow, and I don't really want to say we're closer, uh, really. We're, we're meeting today. We're continuing to meet this afternoon, tomorrow. The auto companies have offered 20% raises over four years, far more generous than past contracts, along with inflation protection measures and a quicker path to the top wage. But the UAW says the big three can afford more, given their record profits over the past decade. Fain has warned that the union will expand the strike to other plants if sufficient progress is not made. Andrea and PR News. Korean leader Kim Jong-un has completed a six-day official visit to Russia. As NPR's Charles Means reports, the trip was dominated by military-related events following a closely-watched summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The North Korean leader's journey in Russia ended much as it began, with a Russian military orchestra serenading him aboard his green-armored presidential train. Kim's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin came amid U.S. fears that Pyongyang is prepared to sell Russia much-needed arms for the war in Ukraine in exchange for access to advanced Russian technology. The Kremlin says no formal agreements were signed, yet the North Korean leader fully endorsed Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In turn, the Kremlin provided Kim with up-close inspections of Russian satellites, military fighter jets, nuclear submarines, and state-of-the-art hypersonic missile systems. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. A World War I vintage airplane crashed late this morning at the American Heritage Museum near the border of the towns of Hudson and Stowe. The single-engine biplane reportedly lost power as it attempted to land at the airfield. The front landing gear collapsed and the plane flipped over. The pilot was not injured. The crash happened during the museum's World War I aviation weekend. The Cambridge Health Alliance has reinstated a mask mandate for patients, visitors, and employees in all patient care areas at its locations in Cambridge, Everett, Somerville, Malden, and Revere. The mask requirement goes into effect tomorrow. The Boston Business Journal reports the Health Alliance CEO says the mandate will most likely be in effect for the duration of the season for flu, RSC, and COVID. A study from Boston University School of Public Health has found that Massachusetts is the healthiest state in the U.S. It's the third consecutive year the state has earned that distinction. Researchers compiled their rankings after an analysis of nearly 500,000 Americans' physical, social, and financial well-being. The Boston City Council is considering a change that would better track the flow of illegal firearms. Tomorrow morning, the council is holding a hearing on a proposal that would require law enforcement agencies to submit an annual report about the issue. City documents show that in 2021, only 10 percent of the guns recovered from crime scenes were purchased in Massachusetts. Maintenance work is scheduled to start tomorrow on the Bourne Bridge, weather permitting. Travel will be reduced from two lanes in each direction to a single lane in each direction. The lane restrictions will be in effect 24 hours a day until the work is completed in late November. Drivers should anticipate delays. The Red Sox lost to Toronto this afternoon by a score of 3-2, to two, and the Patriots host Miami tonight at Gillette Stadium. Showers likely overnight near 60 degrees, showers and thunderstorms near 70 tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. It's a big month for Congress and for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy, you may recall, had to weather 15 rounds of votes at the beginning of the year to be elected speaker. And since winning that job, he has had to hold a caucus together that is made up of right-wing populists eager to push Trumpism and eager to flex their power, but also a group of moderates from Democratic-leaning states who helped give Republicans the majority and are in danger in next year's elections. All the while, McCarthy has been trying to head off repeated threats to his own job. All of that may be coming to a head in the coming weeks, as McCarthy and other congressional leaders navigate a government funding deadline and a push from the hardliners in his party to force a government shutdown. So it was a bit surprising when McCarthy added another big element to the mix. You know, in the months that we were gone, in the weeks, House Republicans have uncovered serious and credible allegations into President Biden's conduct. Taken together... These allegations paint a picture of a culture of corruption. It is important to point out that House Republicans have not singled out a clear impeachable action as they've probed the business dealings of Biden's criminally charged son, Hunter, among other things. But still, McCarthy announced, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. 
If McCarthy's calculation was that this might get conservatives pushing impeachment to back down, he was wrong. Just after the announcement, Florida Republican Representative Matt Gates took to the House floor. I rise today to serve notice. Mr. Speaker, you are out of compliance with the agreement that allowed you to assume this role. The path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you into immediate total compliance or remove you pursuant to a motion to vacate the chair. In our Sunday cover story, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is struggling to unite Trump-era Republicans around a plan to avert a government shutdown at the end of the month, and he's trying to protect his job as Speaker. So what does he do next, and how does this play out? To talk about that and to better understand McCarthy's motivations, we are joined by NPR's congressional correspondent, Deirdre Walsh. Hey, Deirdre. Hey, Scott. So to be fair to McCarthy, he has, so far at least, found his way through these various situations, right? Took him 15 tries to be Speaker. Right now he is Speaker of the House. He did succeed. So how is that dynamic that keeps replaying itself playing out in this moment? He still has this razor-thin margin. So he's trying to keep his members united. The other thing about McCarthy is he came up through the ranks really as a political operator, not so much as a legislator. So he doesn't have a lot of experience navigating these big bipartisan negotiations. He gained some in the debt ceiling with President Biden, Mm -hmm. but he left that to his lieutenants. They did the substance. The problem is that debt ceiling deal is sort of coming home to roost because he agreed with the president to these spending levels. A bunch of conservatives who didn't vote for that deal don't want to go along with it. And that's sort of the root of the problem in this big spending fight right now. And one of those conservatives, Matt Gates from Florida, is now threatening to oust the speaker. Mm-hmm. As we learned during the election of the speaker, the rule is only one member has to say, I raise a motion to vacate the chair, which essentially is a vote of confidence on the speaker. And he's threatening to do that. Things came to a head in their closed door meeting. I mean, Kevin McCarthy basically said to Matt Gates, bring it on. Most people get to speak on the first round. It took me 15. I'm a little Irish. okay? so um, I don't walk away from a battle. I knew changing Washington would not be easy. I knew people would fight or try to hold leverage for other things. I'm going to continue to just to focus on what's the right thing to do for the American people. And you know what? If it takes a fight, I'll have a fight. Deirdre, you can speak from experience. Is is, is taking 15 rounds to get your job a particularly Irish thing? I didn't know that as an Irish American. But um, (laughs) McCarthy frequently talks about that. Uh, His Irish stick-to-itiveness is part of his character and that's part of who he is, and he's he's there for it. And, and you can see that mindset going into all of the different dynamics he's playing out. But just real quick, you talked about that that razor-thin margin. You talked about the hard right members of his caucus, and there are more moderate members of his caucus, and they are the ones who are endangered and could flip the House back to Democrats next year if they lose. How does he keep both sides happy in impeachment? That seems particularly impossible to me. Right. I think right now what he's doing is he's walking this line announcing the impeachment inquiry himself and not actually doing the vote Mm -hmm. to launch an impeachment, which just 10 days ago, he insisted, I'm never going to do an impeachment inquiry without a House vote. I think he realized that would put those members in a tough position. So he reversed himself and he's kind of taking the hit for flip-flopping by not forcing them to go on the record. And the ones that I've talked to that are in those swing districts 
are basically saying, I'm okay with an inquiry. Let's just see where the facts lead. Mm -hmm. And for now, they don't have to vote on anything. So they sort of see it as something that's happening in the future. So let's talk more about today's political problem, and that is this looming government shutdown possibility. But McCarthy seemed to do everything he could to avoid this, right? Uh, He negotiated a spending plan with President Biden during the debt limit standoff last year. He didn't want to be here. Why is he here? It comes down to that same group of 20 or so hardline conservative House members who reluctantly elected Speaker McCarthy eventually, but hated the debt deal and saw as part of the deal to elect McCarthy a commitment to cut spending. Mm -hmm. So they say right now he's not delivering on the promises he made when they negotiated him eventually getting the votes to be elected Speaker. I don't know how he gets out of this because of that razor-thin margin. Right now, any bill he puts on the floor, he has to pass just with Republican votes. Chip Roy from Texas is one of those leading conservatives negotiating with the Speaker right now. And he's saying, look, shutdown's not a big problem. The folks back home want to see us fight. And he was Senator Ted Cruz's chief of staff during the infamous 2013 shutdown. And he thought it worked out well for Republicans. And here's Chip Roy talking about that. Because my former boss, Senator Cruz, went down and fought Obamacare. And the American people saw that fight. They're seeing us fighting for them right now. And I think that as long as you have that group who feel like a shutdown isn't a big deal, McCarthy faces this internal battle that he's going to eventually have to go to Democrats for the votes. So, I mean, I guess the question is, how serious is the risk to McCarthy's job? Because we have been talking about it for nearly a full year now. And like we said, he is still speaker. The motion to vacate the chair still has not happened yet. How real is this versus posturing? I think it's very real. Even strong allies of Kevin McCarthy believe that they're going to have to vote on a motion to oust him before the end of this year. A lot of them would just like to get it over with now. They admit they're not entirely sure how it's going to go. I mean, the open question there is what do the Democrats do? Remember, they need 218 to pass this. So even if all of McCarthy's allies vote no, some Democrats could cross over to remove him. But then what happens? What kind of chaos ensues then? So I think it's an open question. I think we'll see this vote at some point. That was NPR's congressional correspondent, Deirdre Walsh. Now, not many people have been in McCarthy's position. Someone who has is former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. We called him up to get his take, and Gingrich says he thinks McCarthy is right to call the bluff of the lawmakers threatening him. One member can be a nuisance, but can they get enough votes? Uh, My guess is McCarthy is the speaker, will be the speaker. So there are people who just hate McCarthy. Uh, That's just part of the business. So on the two big things facing McCarthy right now, we could take them one at a time. I'm curious what you think the biggest challenges are. Let's start with impeachment. Because right there, you've got you've got two factions of the caucus diametrically opposed, at least at the moment. And I don't think it's mathematically possible to move forward and keep them both happy. You have have the the Freedom Caucus types we talk so much about. And you have the moderates who who are in more danger next year who who don't want to take a vote on this. What would you do? Well, I would do exactly what McCarthy's done, which is move to an inquiry, not to impeachment and to see what the evidence is. One of two things will happen. It'll turn out there's nothing there, that it was just a bunch of rumors. It'll disappear. The moderates will be happy. Or it'll turn out that the scale of corruption is so clear, so vast, in a way that you just can't ignore. In which case, people back home will tell the moderates, yeah, you have no choice. 
Mr. Speaker, you you have some experience with impeachment yourself. You move forward right. with with an impeachment case, and the decades later shorthand is kind of that it did more political damage in the short term to your party than the person that you were impeaching. What did you learn from that experience that you think McCarthy should do differently or the same as he kind of starts to look in this? Uh, I, I learned that going to an inquiry is a really useful start. I also learned that in the end, impeachment is an inherently political process. If the American people are with you, there's a great Lincoln quote, that with popular sentiment, anything is possible. Without popular sentiment, nothing is possible. I felt strongly and still do that Bill Clinton committed a felony. Now, so my advice is go slow, make sure you communicate with the American people, and and the American people ultimately will tell you. One other question, another thing you've had some experience with, uh, what, how do you see this, this government funding uh, stalemate playing out over the next few weeks? How likely do you think a shutdown is, given the dynamics in McCarthy's caucus well, for, and everything for, else? First of all, I, I am the one person... Uh, the you'll talk to who will tell you that the shutdowns did not hurt the Republicans yeah. at all, period. We shut the government down twice, once for 27 days, in a genuine fight over getting to a balanced budget. And we became the first re-elected House Republican majority since 1928. So tell me how it hurt us. I think that McCarthy has got, he's got to do one of two things. He either has to convince the hardliners that there is a path that they can be on with him and he can pass something with Republican votes, which is what he did do on the debt seal. And that gave him the strongest possible position. And basically, he won and outmaneuvered both the Senate and Biden. Now, if he can't do that, he will sooner or later have to cut a deal with the Democrats, which will make part of his conference unhappy. But the fact is that that's the part of the conference that is least interested in compromise and hasn't thought through that if they don't find some point of compromise internally, they will get a much worse deal. That's former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad to do it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe's Globe Summit 2023. Today's innovators, tomorrow's leaders. Virtually or in person at WBUR's City Space, September 19th through 21st. The third annual event features speakers Rain Wilson, Devin McCourty, Alex Cora, Keith Lockhart, and more. Open to the public. Registration at globe.com slash summit. Showers likely overnight with a low near 60. Showers, thunderstorms near 70 tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Negotiations continue this weekend after the United Auto Workers Union went out on strike against Detroit's three big automakers. The union says progress in the talks, though, is slow. Ford already temporarily laid off 600 employees at one plant because of the strike, and GM says 2,000 workers at another plant will be laid off this week.
A United Nations committee voted today to list prehistoric ruins near the ancient West Bank city of Jericho as a, quote, world heritage site in Palestine. That's a decision that angered Israel, which controls the territory and doesn't recognize a Palestinian state. And at the weekend box office, the horror sequel to The Nun 2 took the top spot. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers or at SmartMouth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Auto workers are striking for a third day at three Midwestern auto plants. We are the union! We are the union! Talks between the automakers and the United Auto Workers Union are ongoing, but not a whole lot of progress has been made yet. NPR's Andrea Shu has been following this story and joins us now. Hey, Andrea. Hi. So day three of the strike. What's the latest? Well, this really is an unprecedented strike. It's the first time the UAW has walked out on all three of the big three automakers at once. But at the same time, it's limited and targeted. So workers at just three plants are striking at the moment. It's a GM plant in Missouri, a Ford plant in Michigan, and a Stellantis plant in Toledo, Ohio. And together, They employ about 13,000 workers or 9% of the union workforce at these three auto companies. But here's a twist, Scott. The automakers have already announced layoffs at other plants, which they say is a consequence of this strike. Okay, and just to underscore that, we are talking about plants that are not the plants where the strike is happening. That's right. The companies are saying this is a ripple effect. The plants that are on strike assemble cars, but they also make components for some of these other plants. So, for example, the Ford workers who are on strike in Michigan, well, some of them are responsible for coding materials that then go on to workers in a different part of that plant who are not on strike. And Ford's saying, well, those workers can't do their jobs without the coding process. So Ford has already told 600 people not to report to work. Mm -hmm. And likewise, GM is saying it's going to have to lay off 2,000 workers in Kansas this week because it can't get parts that are made by workers in Missouri who are on strike. So what is the UAW saying in response? And is there any sense yet whether these kinds of layoffs could change their strategy? I mean, it could eventually, but it doesn't appear to yet. The UAW is saying these layoffs are unnecessary, that the companies are just trying to put the squeeze on workers, trying to get them to settle for less. But an important point is the car companies usually pay workers when they temporarily idle a plant. But GM, at least, has made clear they're not going to pay them this time because it's this is due to a strike. Now, the UAW has stepped up and said it would make sure that the laid-off workers don't go without income, but it's unclear how much the union's going to provide. The union's already um, paying workers who are on strike about $500 a week. What are the other major sticking points here? Well, I'd say the biggest sticking point is still pay. The car companies have sweetened their offers. They started out offering 10% wage increases over four years. Now they're up to 20 and 21%. But the UAW is asking for 40% compounded over four years. So that's still a really big gap. 
And, and the carmakers are saying what they've offered is historically generous at a time when they're facing this very expensive transition to electric vehicles. Ford has said the UAW's demands would bankrupt the company right when they need to be investing profits to secure the company's future. But of course, the UAW's president, Sean Fain, has rejected those arguments. He's been hammering this message that the carmakers have been hugely profitable over the last decade and that they need to share more of those profits with the rank and file. Um, he was on Sunday shows this morning. Here he was on C CBS's Face the Nation. If we don't get better offers and we don't get down and take care of the members' needs, then uh, we're going to amp this thing up even more. And Scott, what he means by that is he may add more plants to the strike, mm. and that really could happen at any time. You know, Sean Fain sees this as going beyond just the auto workers. For him, it's really a struggle between the working class and what he calls the billionaire class. That's NPR's Andrea Shu covering this ongoing strike. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Puerto Rico's electric power grid does not have a great track record when it comes to weathering powerful storms. Last year, Hurricane Fiona knocked out electricity for many across the island. And just six years ago, Hurricane Maria left large parts of Puerto Rico without power for months. That explains why many on the island favor building a decentralized grid, one that is more stable and more resilient and powered mostly by the sun. Our colleagues at Here and Now sent reporter Chris Bentley to look into this recently, and here's the story. You can find what some people in Puerto Rico see as the future of the electric grid here in the mountains north of Ponce, where the Rio Sidra runs past the town square in Adjuntas. Even as the sun sinks behind the mountains, 14 businesses and two apartment buildings along this central plaza are running on solar power, thanks to two banks of batteries and some computers that orchestrate the flow of electricity among them. That is a microgrid, a self-reliant mini-utility run independently of the island-wide grid. Tucked behind a furniture store and a defunct gas station, there is a row of big gray boxes, like industrial refrigerators, these are the guts of the Adjuntas microgrid. And these guys are built for all conditions. They're built for strong winds. They're built for fire suppressant, just kind of inside the system. Rain, shine, they're built for kind of these Puerto Rico hurricane yeah. conditions. And in this case, they don't mind a bunch of lizards running all over them. No, no, they're used to that and they're, they're very happy, yeah. <laughs> Cynthia Arellano is project manager for the Honnold Foundation, a nonprofit that helped Adjuntas build its microgrid. But the project started with Casa Pueblo, a local community organization that has run exclusively on solar for years. So after Hurricane Maria, like Casa Pueblo became this example of what you could have if there was solar, if there was an alternative to the grid that at the moment was down for over 11 months here in Adjuntas. Ariano says the businesses benefiting from the microgrid took that example to heart and now essentially run their own mini utility. The community was always like, okay, we have now this resiliency component, we have the solar, we have the battery, but we are going to charge ourselves for the power that we are consuming. We are going to reinvest that money into our own community. They are going to be managing, operating, and just owning the entire system. Leading that effort is Gustavo Irizari, who runs a pizza shop on the square. He says the microgrid is about energy security. If something happens, like a hurricane or an earthquake, we have electricity security. And I have security for my employees, because they know there will be work. That's why it's important to share energy, because the project is making a difference and making us a community. There are lots of communities in Puerto Rico trying to replicate what Adjuntas has. La Margarita is one of them. 
It's a neighborhood in the town of Salinas, which sees frequent flooding and power outages, especially after hurricanes. Many residents are elderly. Some of them live off a few hundred dollars a month in Social Security. And emergency preparedness is on everyone's mind here, says Wanda Rios, president of the Neighborhood Association. To have a resilient community, we have to have a resilient energy system. Earlier this year, they installed solar panels on their community center. But Rios wants the whole neighborhood to go solar and form a microgrid before the next big storm. You can have the generator for maybe two or three hours, and then you run out of gas. Mm -hmm. And when we have a hurricane, you don't have a gas neither. If we want to keep living and we want a clean environment, we have to move to solar, and that's, that's it. Her group recently won a $30,000 federal grant, but they need a lot more. Rio says the Puerto Rican government is too slow to certify groups like hers as energy cooperatives so they can access other types of financing. And if Puerto Rico is going to make its goal of 100% renewable electricity by 2050, it'll need a lot more initiatives like this one. The change isn't happening fast enough. We're only about 3 or 4% renewable energy. Ruth Santiago also lives in Salinas. She's a lawyer and activist. And she says the government should focus on people who can't afford the upfront costs to install solar themselves. It's an equity issue. We're developing sort of a separate and unequal electric system here where poor communities that have less access to the financing or the loans or there's no public funding for these kinds of installations for low-income, middle-income people, well, they're left behind. And it's costing lives. Puerto Rico's electricity is generated at power plants far from the main population center in San Juan. It has to travel over power lines through the island's central mountain range, which is often pummeled by storms. That's why Santiago wants to see more rooftop solar and microgrids across the island, instead of new renewable energy plants that she says replicate the vulnerabilities of the existing grid. She's part of a lawsuit against FEMA alleging the agency failed to meaningfully consider that option when it allocated more than $11 billion in hurricane recovery money to rebuild the grid. We've got to get out of this vicious cycle of depending on this centralized grid that gets knocked down with every hurricane or every other hurricane. It's a matter of the government listening to communities and people who are aware of the need for this transformation. So, first of all, that uh, statement that we are uh, repairing and rebuilding the same it was, it's highly inaccurate and factually incorrect. Shea Baramarad is VP of Engineering for Luma, the power company in charge of Puerto Rico's electricity transmission. She says they're rebuilding the grid better than it was. We are elevating substations, we are relocating substations, and we are adding number of um, additional points in the system to make sure that if something happens to one part of the um, electrical system, the entire island is not going to go dark. So fundamentally, the design of the system is completely different. And Baramirad says they're committed to bringing online more solar as well as some microgrids. But there are challenges. I would say that the, the toughest part of this industry at this point is supply chain because of the events around the world and war and, and all sorts of different things, the, the delaying equipment, those equipment that they used to be delivered in 16 months now, we are talking about 28 or 60 uh, percent longer than what it used to be. Another challenge, coordination between the myriad public and private operators of Puerto Rico's grid 
one of whom, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, is bankrupt and still restructuring more than $9 billion in debt. We recognize that we're building on an old fossil fuel system. That's Jennifer Granholm, the U.S. Secretary of Energy. President Biden appointed her to lead what he called a supercharged effort to rebuild Puerto Rico's grid. In December, Congress approved a billion dollars to, quote, improve the resilience of Puerto Rico's electric grid. So, yes, there is some investment in rebuilding the grid so that people can have power today. But there is a much greater emphasis and desire to see the build out of this clean energy future. That includes several microgrid projects that the Department of Energy is helping develop in Puerto Rico, including on Vieques and Culebra, two smaller islands off Puerto Rico's eastern shore. The damage to the electrical infrastructure following uh, Irma and Maria left those islands without power for over 80 days with no, you know, no reliable backup power, including for having a hospital system. That's just unacceptable. There's still no microgrid, but Culebra is on its way to becoming the first all-solar island in the hemisphere. Nelson Melendez's house is already there. Hola. Blackouts are common on Culebra. Now, thanks to seven solar panels on his roof and a battery system on the front patio, Melendez says he never loses power. As a matter of fact, yesterday my, my neighbor called me, hey, the power ran off. <laughs> I haven't noticed. <laughs> His house produces more energy than it consumes, so they're selling back to the grid on the main island. The low energy bill, just four bucks a month in fees, none for electricity, is great, Melendez says. But what he really values is the peace of mind. Well, knowing that no matter what happens in the big island or whatever happens with the power generation, we're okay. Melendez's system was installed as part of a program by Fundacion Colibri and the Environmental Defense Fund to bring solar to about 10% of Culebra's buildings. Other homes have paid for their own solar panels, which means tiny Culebra is farther along in its goal of 100% renewable electricity than the main island. That's because the community has taken agency over their power situation, out of necessity, says Braulio Quintero. He's the EDF's director for energy transition in Puerto Rico. I think a very important thing that our project here in Culebra is doing is giving power to the people, literally and figuratively talking and poetically talking, right? And I think even more powerful is a successful project here will demonstrate to other islands in the Caribbean and around the world what could be done. And in that way, he says, decentralizing power generation through microgrids and renewable energy It's not about going it alone or getting rid of the grid altogether, but building an alternative within it, from the community level on up. Reporter Chris Bentley, his story originally aired on Here and Now as part of a series on climate change called Reverse Course. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Don't be fooled by the beauty of the spotted lanternfly. They are quite striking. Their wings are red, white, black, and brown. And of course, they're covered in spots. But in the 14 states they're currently found in, they are an invasive species. They can damage crops and trees and leave sticky stuff everywhere. 
Marielle Seguera, the host of NPR's Life Kit, has more on what we can do to help keep these agents of chaos under control. The spotted lanternfly is from Southeast Asia. And in Southeast Asia, it is not at the top of the food chain. Sammy Ramsey is an entomology professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. In most ecosystems, insects like this have a specialist predator that is dedicated to going after this organism and is really, really good at it. And that keeps an organism's populations low. But here in the U.S., spotted lanternflies do not have specialized predators. So they just keep making bug love and multiplying and causing problems. For instance, at vineyards. These guys have never met a grape they didn't like. So when they attach themselves to grapes, they can taint the taste of wine itself by changing the sugar and water content. In addition to that, they go after apples, they go after some ornamental plants. They can also do damage to young trees and saplings. And here's a gross thing. Recently, I walked out of my house and something sticky dripped on my head. And then later, my neighbor says to me, have you noticed all these drops all over the sidewalk? Then we figured out that it was bug goo the lanternflies had left on top of the leaves. And guess what it is? It is the excrement of the spotted lanternfly. They feed on fluids that are almost exclusively sugar. And so when they are excreting, it is a huge volume of sugar in fluid that they are flicking out of their back end. Yeah, it's nasty. And there are fungi that develop on top of this goo, which makes it harder for the leaves to carry out photosynthesis. It can make plants less productive because they're getting less food. So, what to do? This is the part where I tell you to choose violence. And I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that, but I need to tell you to squish them. That said, if you've ever tried to stomp on one of these beautiful menaces, you will know that they are jumpers. So another approach is to use sticky bands, glue traps that wrap around the trees and catch the lanternflies. They get stuck to these bands. They can't extricate themselves from it. And as a result, they starve there and die. Unfortunately, Ramsey says, the bands can also trap other creatures, which we don't want. Some people build wire cages around them to make that less likely. He says we also need to go after lanternfly eggs. If you live in a hot spot, you'll start to see these egg masses on the trees, and each one has about 50 eggs in it. The egg masses can be white or gray or tan or even match with the bark. We've heard people say they look like old chewing gum. The egg masses are the most vulnerable stage in their life cycle and also the easiest stage for you to just kind of grab and toss it into a plastic bag and never have to worry about it again. You'll have to do a little scraping to get them off and then put them in a sealable bag with rubbing alcohol or hand sanitizer to kill them and throw them in the trash. You don't have to worry about your own health when you're doing this. The lanternflies are not poisonous and they don't bite. But if you want to wear gloves, by all means. Also, if you see a spotted lanternfly in a place where they're not already known to exist, take a picture and send it to your state Department of Agriculture. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. more life tips and hacks, go to npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for joining us. And coming up next at 6 o'clock, the New Yorker Radio Hour. Tonight, the solution 
for homelessness. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. Love is now electric. Showers likely overnight, with temperatures dropping to around 60 degrees. Showers and thunderstorms near 70 tomorrow. Sunny skies, 70s on Tuesday. It's 76 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In New York City, climate activists marched trying to pressure the Biden administration to take more aggressive action to limit global warming. This as world leaders, including President Biden, gather in the city for the U.N. General Assembly. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un is on his way home after a six-day trip to Russia. He met with President Vladimir Putin and visited key military and technology sites. It was Kim's second meeting with Putin. And actress Drew Barrymore, who drew criticism for taping new episodes of her daytime talk show despite the ongoing actor and writer's strike, now says she'll wait until the strikes are over. Her show was supposed to start again tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global communities make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It is Sunday, which means it's time for another Enlighten Me with Rachel Martin. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Scott. Okay, so what I'm about to do, I understand, is a little bit risky. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. I am going to say a few words, and then I want you to tell me what they all have in common. Mm, Okay, (laughs) let's do it. Psychedelics. Church revivals, giving birth. Uh, the first and third would, I feel like drugs would be a common theme. <laughs> Psychedelics and giving birth. Absolutely. Yes. yes. For many, Intensi- many people, drugs are a part of giving birth because otherwise it really. Intensity. Really intensity. Intensity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Intensity. I, I think that's, I mean, that is true. And it dovetails with the word that I'm going to use now, which is ecstatic. All right, I could I could see that, and <laughs> that makes a lot more sense than my first answer. But in what in what sense of the word ecstatic are we talking about here? Right. Okay. So this the root of this is ecstasy, right? But that can mm-hmm. mean a lot of different things. But we are talking about the kind of ecstasy that Merriam-Webster defines as a sense of overwhelming emotion, mm-hmm. or even a mystic trance, is how yeah. they say it. And this is something that Gia Tolentino has thought a lot about. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker. 
And I wanted to talk to her for this series. She is a really interesting thinker, and she's got a very nuanced take on her own religious upbringing. She grew up going to an evangelical megachurch outside of Houston, and she is all about ecstasy, like in the in the literal and figurative ways. Okay. So she in found... The pro- like the proper noun of it. Right, exactly. She found ecstatic experiences very readily mm-hmm. going to church in a religious context, and then she found them in illicit drugs. And now she finds that overwhelming sense of joy and transcendence and, yes, ecstasy coming from a far more personal place. You just had a baby, right? How many months ago now? Uh, she's nine weeks old. Oh, not we're not even in the months of yeah, chronicling yeah, yeah. She's a life for the weeks. Yeah. She's tiny. Oh. But my partner's taking the whole year off to take care of her. So This is Gia Tolentino's life. second child. She and her partner also have a daughter who's three. So life is as full and as messy as you'd expect. But this whole procreating thing wasn't a foregone conclusion for Gia. I'm still like very theoretically ambivalent on the decision to have children, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm so glad now. I'm I'm really glad. Why? What's good about it? I know that seems obvious. And like parents are hearing that like, how could you ask such a thing? You know, having children is like this amazing experience. And it is, but I don't know. What specifically? I think I was hungry for ego death in general. And I have sought experiences of ego death in various capacities in my life. You know, like I wrote about in drugs and in, you know, certain experiences of music and art and but really mostly in drugs. <laughs> and, um, Explain what that means to you, ego death. I think I just realized at some point, you know, so, so I, I grew up extremely religious. And I think that one of the things that I was, that Sorry. kept me religious for so long was the experience of sublimating the ego to a sense of the divine. And, you know, you would get it occasionally in prayer. You would get it, um, I would get it often in this giant, giant church that I was, raised in, this was the kind of church where the pastor's face is on billboards throughout the highway and the sermons are broadcast on TV every Sunday and the worship center, as it was called, was three stories high and that sat, I think, five to 6,000 people. I think it had the largest pipe organ in the state of Texas. Wow. That's saying something. I would go on these Christian retreats every summer in high school. And there were just these mass baptisms. Like Like in a lake? Like the whole... I honestly think sometimes it was in a swimming pool in this big resort in the Gulf Shores, Alabama. (laughs) You know, it was this these kind of big revivals that were just full of hormonal teenagers, like getting extremely swayed by one thing or another and feeling the deep need to accept Christ. And I did it all. (laughs) But were you... You wanted to lean into those transcendental moments even as a child because it is an it it is an access point I mean I just realized I felt most like some particular version of myself that I I liked accessing when I could feel the boundaries of myself dissolving and I could Mm. feel myself as part of this like nebulous collective and that always came with some sort of access point to mystery and some sort of access point to fear and, but also like love and connection. Right. And you get that in church, you get that with this backdrop of salvation and damnation and like pouring out your love to God and God pouring out love back to you and supplication, all these things. 
Um, and as I stopped believing in God, uh, and stopped certainly believing in any sort of idea of God that was taught to me, you know, that's recognizable within a Christian framework, um, I started to seek that experience of the boundaries of the self dissolving in drugs and in music and just lots of dark rooms where people kind of felt the boundaries of the self go away. Um, it felt good for me whenever I would have those experiences of ego death or ego dissolution. Accessing those parts of your consciousness through, through drugs, through those kinds of experiences, did that fill the void that leaving religion had left? The thing is, I don't think there was a void. Uh, and that was one thing that I was suspicious about. You know, I was like, Gia, you, you really rationalized this all a little too cleanly. You know, you were like, oh, I found sources in other things. I found sources of God in other things. And it struck me that, although going back and rereading my journals, it was not quite as smooth with a transition as I thought it was. Like I did have a year or two where I was really kind of turgid with thoughts about you know, what does it mean that I like, I'm maybe not a Christian anymore, but it felt like there had not been a void left. I felt enough access in my life to spaces of transcendence into submission and to like ethical inquiry, you know, these things that I was, that I wanted and still want and learned through religion. I've never found a shortage of, of paths towards those things. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I think about my parents are still religious. And sometimes I think about the, the comfort that, you know, that real religious faith gives people, you know, this real, um, this real trust in a divine will mm-hmm. and the comfort of that, that I don't have whatsoever, but I actually, I think maybe that was a reason that I drifted this way. Like, I don't want that comfort. Right. I want, like, I think um, it has been better for me to have no trust in, in a plan or, mm-hmm. or a path or anything like I, I think I'm better off operating as if this and the absence of supervision is all that we have mm-hmm. because it, it it puts the onus on you and yeah. and that is okay more than yeah. okay and I think bracing and um enlivening and 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 kind of and it feels feels scarier in a good way <laughs> yeah how does that jibe with your efforts to dissolve your ego? I wrestle with this myself. So if if there is nothing and it's us, right? And we have all the agency and we create the meaning and we define the sacred spaces because we just decide that they are. Yeah. That feels like building up the ego, not sublimating it. I think, I mean, in some aspects it does. In some aspects, in some aspects, building your own well, it's never really building your own, like finding your own tradition of ethics or, you know, or action or whatever. To to some extent, sure, it feels like in in that you are constructing a sort of self-based universe of of all of these. But I I still feel like the the actual experiences of those things, they're still cracking at the ego. You know, I mean, the, the, the most... Like I'm thinking about, you know, my experiences, let's take, let's say of the last, so I had my first kid in August, 2020. So the experiences of that ego dissolution, they've happened so often in these experiences with 
my child, you know, when they happened in birth itself, this incredibly shocking event where you are nothing but a vessel. Um, And it's this shocking moment of revelation and this kind of the, the twinning of life and death and the, like that felt divine in like a, the real way, like bloody and terrifying, like the way that transcendence is always paired with terror, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and those moments and, and just the, I think I've had an understanding in the last three years also, like there are kind of ecstatic moments like that, but I think I've had an understanding of ego dissolution in steady work now, Mm. you know, the, the way that, um, the way that if the connection between ego dissolution and like finding an ethical path, if that's what we're talking about here, I think I've located it much more in the last few years in let's say the labor of caregiving or just like certain forms of community labor. And and I would say actually overarchingly the labor of caregiving and just me, I've been trying to learn how I want to apply that in more areas of my life and to borrow the 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 abilities that child rearing teaches you, the just of kind of a daily quiet submission mm-hmm. to to the these acts of care and to the well-being of another person. Um, I think I found those two things connecting in those acts. One thing that I found sad about having a kid is that my natural ecstatic inclinations, I, I used to spike really high all the time. Yeah. And I don't really anymore. It's more like, it's it's like that that impulse gets trickled out a million times a day in tiny ways. And so I no longer have these big reserves that I'll just be like walking around in New York city and just feel like overcome with a sense of transcendence. Like I don't have that anymore. It feels like I'm, I'm meeting it out every day on my children. And, and that honestly feels like one of the biggest, most fundamental changes to my life since having a kid. I mean, I can still access those emotions, certainly, but they don't come as often and as intensely. And, you know, it's partly just getting older and like not having hours to just walk around at golden hour, you know, like you're just, that's like, that's, those are the peak indoor chaos hours in my home now. Does that Um, feel like a grief to you or just a change? I feel like a little bit of grief about it, but I also think it's it feels right. Like it also feels entirely correct to this stage of life, which I, I think I've something that I've been telling myself in this, you know, I'm like deep in it right now. I have an eight, nine week old and a three-year-old. And I've been reminding myself that three years from now, this will be an entirely different phase. Like, I think that I have more shifts in the way these issues manifest to me as mm-hmm. time goes on. I think like death will come to play a larger part in it as time goes on. Yep. And I think, you know, my sense of independent experience certainly will shift again, hopefully shift dramatically in the next 10 years so that I'll start having more of them. <laughs> right yeah. now it's like there's, there's just short supply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be really basic about it you see a spiritual component of parenting yeah the primary way that I think about you know these the biggest sweep of all the stuff that we're talking about let's be real like it's still drugs it's still (laughs) it's still like you know um like last summer 
I was done breastfeeding. You know, I, I went to Montana with one of my best friends for three days and we went hiking and then we did acid and she's a like born and bred downtown New York girl and, you know, staunch atheist. And she had this moment, you know, I mean, it was just, it was overpoweringly beautiful. And also we were on acid and, and she was like, how is it that we're alive at the same time as each other and as all this beauty and like she was like I feel so scared and I feel so grateful and I feel we're both starting to cry and I was like girl this is this is why people believe in God you know <laughs> like totally like this is um like I'm reminded in those moments that now what I understand as the closest analog to God mm -hmm. is the fact that the laws of physics and biology create a world that begets life yeah you know human and non-human and then I understand the, the framework of the devil as the, you know, as the competing forces of entropy. Like I basically, like mm -hmm. at some point in college, I was like, okay, this thing that I understood as God, creation and destruction is basically just whatever laws of physics are knitting this world together. Right. And I locate some sense of that spiritual wonder in the fact that, you know, like I'm, I'm really into Fermi's paradox, like us, you know, the fact that we, there's definitely extraterrestrial life mathematically, but how come we haven't found it yet? I mean, like if, if I were to try to make an argument for myself that God exists, like that probably would be one of them, that we are the only known consciousness in the universe to us. Um, and, and how that, could that be so? How could that be so? Right. If I still believed in God, I would just say, well, because God made us and, and that is what makes this world. But, and you know, that there's like a, there's a shimmer of the divine around, you know, just the fact of our existence to me. And so in that way, my understanding of spirituality has, you know, like bloomed to an inhuman scale. And then it has shrunk to, yeah, there's the, the labor of taking care of a brand new life and the, the small moments of mystery and the unknown and also fear and also desperation that that experience brings you. I've so enjoyed our conversation. I really, really appreciate you doing it. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think this series is so lovely. It's like, these are the things that like you never just sit down and talk about. Gia Tolentino is a staff writer for The New Yorker. 